What I'd like to talk about tonight is the meditation that the Buddha taught, or the meditations that the Buddha taught on the four Brahma Viharas, which are loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, which means rejoicing in others, happiness, and equanimity. The word Brahma means noble or holy. Vihara means dwelling or abiding, so that this meditation center, for example, could be called a vihara. And in this sense, in Brahma Vihara, it means a mind dwelling. And there's another word that's often used in relation to this, which is apamana, which means infinite or boundless. So these are meditations on infinite or boundless loving-kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. I want to talk about these both in terms of the very traditional or classical way to develop them, which may seem relevant and may not. And I want to talk about them in terms of my own recent experience, because I spent almost the whole time that I was recently in Burma doing this practice of the four Brahma-viharas and not Vipassana. The practice is based upon a particular sutta that the Buddha delivered. It said that at one time there were 500 bhikkhus, monks, who went out in search of a suitable place to meditate. And they reached a mountain at the fringe of the Himalayas. They were in an area where lakes were very abundant and it was quite beautiful. The people at the nearby village were very generous in offering food, and they urged the bhikkhus to spend the entire range retreat there in that vicinity. It's been the custom since the Buddha's time for monks and nuns not to travel during this particular season of the year when it's raining, but to stay in one place and to go into retreat. So these villagers urged the monks to stay in that area for the entire rains retreat. The monks were living in the forest at the roots of trees. And it said that the spirits, who were the guardians of the trees, felt very hassled by the presence of the monks, and they felt compelled to move out of their particular tree, taking their families with them. And it was very disruptive to community life. And they felt more and more disturbed by being hounded out of their trees, they felt. And because of this feeling of being displaced, they decided to try to get rid of the monks, see if they could move back in. So they came in the night, and they caused weird sounds and hideous noises and horrible visions of headless bodies and bodiless heads, and then they caused a very foul odor. The monks became stricken with fear and returned to the Buddha to ask for directions to another place to meditate. They didn't want to go back there. The Buddha told them to return to that very same place in the forest and taught the Metta Sutta, loving-kindness, meditation as a protection and told them that when they got back to the forest to endear themselves to the spirits they should not only recite but actually practice the loving kindness meditation and so they returned back to that same forest and they kept reciting sutta and practicing so that the spirits were overcome with sympathy for the monks and began to assist them in every possible way. So another happy ending. (laughs) The sutta, the actual sermon, describes different personal characteristics that are considered the foundation for doing a loving-kindness meditation 
in an intensive and wholehearted way. And if these are not personal characteristics that are very strong in you, it's said that you can still, just prior to beginning this practice intensively, move into this space, call up these qualities, touch in with these qualities, so that they can be the basis for doing the loving-kindness. The first of these characteristics, or the first statement in the sutta, is that one has to have some level of faith, or a firm belief that the advantages or the benefits are sure to come from doing the practice. This is the kind of confidence that I spoke about once before. If we have that confidence that the benefits are sure to come and that we are capable of doing the practice, then there's an inclination to be persevering, not to be daunted or dismayed when difficulties do come. Otherwise, it's very difficult to continue through these times when things are not going very smoothly, when there seem to be disruptions or obstacles in the practice. So it needs a certain enthusiasm or a certain embracing of the practice with a sense of confidence in the practice itself and in one's own ability to do it. This is the base. The second characteristic or the second statement that the sutta says is that one should be frank and honest, and that this should be practiced actually throughout one's lifetime. It's especially important not to be pretentious. What this meant primarily at the time of the Buddha and in monastic situations since then is that one shouldn't give false impressions of attainment in the monastic community, which is dependent upon lay support, it might be very tempting to present oneself as having had a certain attainment so as to elicit more support. And so there are a lot of prohibitions within the Buddhist teaching about pretense, not using one's spiritual practice for gain, for the purpose of gain, from others or the purpose of fame, not to use it in any way for selfish reasons, and certainly not to present oneself as having accomplished something that is not true. The third characteristic is that one should have an ability to surrender, or as one commentary said, one shouldn't be obstinate and pig-headed. This means that the person doing the Brahma-vihara meditation should be able to accept good advice with pleasure, because a person who can't do this may feel continuously offended in life. And if one feels continuously offended, then they will have a difficult time developing a feeling of boundless loving-kindness. And so all of these foundations, all of these elements of the foundation are actually designed to make it as flowing and as easy as possible to strengthen loving-kindness and compassion and so on. The fifth characteristic says that one should be gentle and soft. Six, that one should not be arrogant, shouldn't slight others taking pride in oneself. And we shouldn't neglect to show deference to others who are worthy of respect simply because they belong to another sect or religion. And the primary example of this, or one primary example of this, was the chief disciple of the Buddha named Saraputra who was a very humble person. He often used to stay behind in the monastery after the other monks and nuns went out just to clean up 
because he felt that if the monastery were left in great disorder, it would create a bad impression on people about the Buddha's teaching. He first encountered the Buddha's teaching when he was young through another monk named Asaji. He was very struck by this monk's appearance and demeanor and followed after him in the marketplace and asked him when he finally encountered him what teaching he was from. And this monk replied that he was a follower of the Buddha. And Saraputra asked, well, what does he teach? And the monk stated a two-line verse, which paraphrased is, everything that arises must pass away. And of course, Saraputra became enlightened upon hearing this. (laughs) And he then went and ordained under the Buddha and became his chief disciple. But he was such a humble person that even though he was the chief disciple of the Buddha, every day he was seen to bow in a different direction. And finally people came up to him and asked, (coughs) what are you doing? Why are you always bowing in a different direction? And he replied that before he went to sleep at night, he bowed in the direction of the monk Asaji, wherever he happened to be, because he was his first teacher, in effect. And so that kind of humility and ability to learn and to respect others is very important for the development of love and kindness. The seventh characteristic is that one should be easily contented, which means to be satisfied with what is available. And the eighth is that one should be easily supported, accepting what's offered, whether it's of high quality or not, with a sense of satisfaction. The ninth characteristic says that we should be free from care, not to be overly burdened by inessential duties and worries and troubles. And tenth, that we should be temperate in the way of living, not to possess so many things that one is burdened or preoccupied by how to manage them all, but to be living as simply as possible. The eleventh says that we should cultivate calmness, which is practicing restraint of all six senses, remaining calm whether there's a pleasant or unpleasant sound or sight or whatever, which leads to repose and tranquility of mind. And the twelfth characteristic says that we should have maturity of reflective knowledge. That means knowing what's good and then being capable of carrying out any task to completion. So this is the beginning. This is the frame of mind, ideally, with which one first approaches the meditation. And again, even if these aren't predominant characteristics, it's possible to call upon them, to reflect upon them, and to arouse them just before beginning the practice. You can do the practice of loving-kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity in any of the four postures of sitting or walking or standing or lying down said that the body should be at ease and as comfortable as possible. And actually, when I did do it in Burma, all four Brahma Viharas, I was taught to do it all day long, every single moment of the day, whether I was eating or standing or walking around or whatever, as well as sitting. The four Brahma Viharas are done sequentially, beginning with metta or loving-kindness. That begins with weighing the pros and cons of the practice of metta, reflecting on the faults or the pain of anger or malice, and then reflecting on the advantages of patience. 
coming to a sense of the misery and the mental distress that are caused by malice. One reflection is on the distortion of one's facial and bodily features by unhappiness when the mind is consumed with anger. Another reflection is on the consequences of that anger if it's manifested in action. Then there's a reflection on the strength of patience and how it is the noblest and most difficult practice of all. Then there's a contemplation of the 11 advantages of doing loving-kindness meditation. This is done as a recitation. I would repeat it sometimes three times, sometimes ten times, at the beginning of each sitting. The first advantage or benefit of doing loving-kindness meditation is that you sleep easily, Mm -hmm. that your sleep is peaceful and undisturbed. The second is that you wake easily. said that a person who is practicing loving-kindness meditation or who is filled with loving-kindness happily rouses from sleep as fresh as the blooming lotus flowers, which was a big change for me. (laughs) (laughs) The third advantage is that you have only pleasant dreams, which I would like to bear testament to. (laughs) When I was in Burma and doing loving-kindness meditation, I either did not dream at all but just slept very restfully. Or if I did dream, I would see these beautiful colors just going through my mind. Or um, had no dreams with any kind of anxiety or, or fear or anger for that time. I actually didn't start to dream again until about a month ago. <laughs> the fourth advantage or benefit from doing loving-kindness is that people love you. They are very attracted to you. They don't find fault with you because the loving-kindness that you transmit outwardly invites affection and respect from others. The fifth advantage or benefit is that the devas love you, the devas and the brahmas, the heavenly beings love you. The sixth is that the devas will protect you. The seventh is that poison and fire won't harm you if it is very, very strong loving-kindness. And the story, the classical story of this, or illustration of this, is of the Buddha himself when his cousin Devadatta, who was quite jealous of him, let loose in the streets, an enraged elephant went charging towards the Buddha. And the Buddha transmitted very powerful loving-kindness and said that the elephant fell down on his feet and bowed in front of the Buddha. And there are many, many stories of people with whom, for whom arrows were deflected and hot oil did not burn, and, and so on. They say even that if you fall off a cliff, that a tree will catch you. I didn't have any chance to test this out. But <laughs> anyway, there is a certain sense underlying this that you will be protected, that it is a benevolent universe when you are transmitting infinite loving-kindness towards all beings within it. The eighth advantage is that the mind is serene and very easily concentrated because of the force of having done the meditation. The ninth advantage is that your face becomes very clear and radiant. The tenth is that you die unconfused without bewilderment or perplexity and the eleventh is that when you die, you are reborn in the Brahma world. 
in short, it's a beautiful way of life. And so I would begin the meditation by reciting these advantages over and over again in my mind. And then began to do the actual loving-kindness meditation. In doing metta meditation, you don't, don't start with people towards whom it would be difficult or awkward to send great loving-kindness towards. You don't start with strangers and you don't start with what they call enemies, people that you have a bad feeling towards. Traditionally, you start with yourself. And the Buddha said, in all ten directions, one can go round and round in search of a person who deserves more love and affection than oneself. This person cannot be found anywhere. And so most traditionally, we begin with ourselves. Some sources have it that you do yourself just for, send metta towards yourself just for 10 or 15 minutes of, say, an hour sitting. Other sources have it that the best way to do it is to do yourself, send metta towards yourself for days or weeks or even months before you move on to the next person. And what I did, which is the traditional way of doing it, is the recitation over and over and over again of four phrases. May I be free from danger, which means both inner danger from being consumed by certain mind states, being overwhelmed by by defilements, and outer danger as well. May I be free from danger. May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I have ease of well-being. That last one means, basically, may I not have to struggle with livelihood and care and concern. May things come together to support my life in an easy fashion without a lot of pain. So it's these four phrases, may I be free from danger, May I be free from mental suffering? May I be free from physical suffering? May I have ease of well-being? The next person that you move on to in directing the force of loving-kindness is a benefactor for whom one feels gratitude, love, and respect. It says in the text that this person should still be alive and that they should be of the same sex. The people usually choose a teacher or a parent. And if neither of these is applicable, then they find somebody else for whom they have a good feeling. The mind is bent towards the recipient and the phrases are repeated over and over and over again. May you be free of danger. May you be free from mental suffering. May you be free from physical suffering. May you have ease of well-being. If any other object arises, a sound or a sensation in the body or another kind of feeling, maybe annoyance or anger or sadness or sometimes um, just a lot of thinking because you're calling someone to mind and it's difficult not to indulge in a lot of thinking about them. If any of these objects arise, then you just drop them. That's why metta, or the, all of these brahma-viharas, are considered concentration practices. All of the attention is given to the recitation of the phrases, and if anything else should arise, it's considered a distraction, and you just drop it. Being in Burma, this was a little difficult, because I would call someone to mind, and of course I would start to think, where are they now? <laughs> How are they now? What's going on? And I had to learn to be very firm and committed to just dropping speculation and reflection and coming back to the recitation of the phrases. Second person whom you direct the feeling towards is a beloved friend, also someone who is alive and of the same sex. And you continue repeating those same phrases towards this person. And sometimes you might substitute other people within the same category, directing the feeling towards them. 
And the third kind of person you direct the feeling towards is a neutral person. And often people find that it's helpful to choose a neutral person that's in the immediate vicinity because you can observe the growing feeling that comes towards this person. And I chose someone who who was there in Burma who I did not have any kind of feeling towards at all. And I watched in amazement after a few days as I began to have just the tenderest feeling towards this person, like a very maternal kind of care and love. And then the fourth category this feeling is directed towards is a hostile or an unfriendly person. And if you bring this person to mind and anger arises instead of loving kindness, then there are various contemplations that you can do to try to separate the mind from the feeling of anger and arouse some sense of loving-kindness. For example, you can contemplate that an enemy can only inflict physical suffering on you. They can't inflict mental suffering. No one can inflict mental suffering on you. That's something that only we can do to ourselves through our reactions. Or you can reflect that it doesn't bring any benefit to oneself to bear a grudge or to be bitter. Or you can reflect that the person who perhaps has harmed you through wrong action has created very bad karma for themselves and will suffer the effects of that. You do not have to then create bad karma for yourself by retaliation. And so there are various reflections that you might do to try to still the anger and develop loving-kindness. After one has gone through all of these, oneself, benefactor, beloved friend, a neutral person, and an unfriendly person, then the feeling grows equal for all of them. Just about when I was at this point, Upandita called me in one day and Half of the board of directors of the monastery were also in the room, as as they often were for our interviews. And it was a little bit like my imagination of what it would like to be up before a draft board, seeing if you qualified as a conscientious objector. They kept firing questions at me, like, say you were in a forest and it was you and your benefactor and a beloved friend and a neutral person and an enemy and a bandit came by and demanded to be able to kill one of you, which one would you choose? Would you throw your enemy to the bandit? Which one would you prefer? Which one would you try to protect? And they would go on like this, and I would think... (laughs) I said, (laughs) I said, um, I can't choose. Like, I just, I can't, I can't make the choice. They all seem equal. And and Upandita looked at me in great distress, like, oh, you know. <laughs> you know and, and he basically said something like, um, don't you think you might sacrifice yourself? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> they all seem equal to me. And I felt, I felt a little embarrassed to her given what seemed to be the wrong answer in front of half the board of directors of the monastery. I thought, oh no, you know, <laughs> I failed. But at the end of it all, when I was reading the Vasudhimaga, I found out that actually what I had said was the right answer, that you're not supposed to be able to discriminate between yourself or your benefactor or your beloved friend or your enemy. So that was fun. <laughs> and that's the end of the initial part of doing the meditation, if you can come to a place where the feeling is equal for all of these different beings. And then you move on to much broader and more general categories, cutting down the boundaries that we hold between different classes of beings. And so there's a recitation of 12 different categories of beings all beings, 
all living beings, all creatures, all individuals, and all those in existence. Those are the first five. And then all females, all males. This means not just people, but animals and other females and males. All enlightened beings, all unenlightened beings, all devas and brahmas, all humans, and then all those in the lower realms. The places where I have resistance to the fear. That is where the resistance to the fear is. And part of what I was describing in, in that, you know, when I was talking about the last retreat, was when I saw beyond, oops, um, beyond the shadow of a doubt that the exact places where my back goes out and where the pain is, are the exact places where I resist the fear. And I, I just saw the cause and effect absolutely clearly, with like a bright light on it. And it made me realize, you know, that... And I think this goes way b- before the virus, you know? What do you mean you resist the fear in your intestines? Oh, well, when, when the fear arises, which I experience like this mm-hmm. very deep sort of bubbling that, that happens like way down here, that's like the energy of fear. And it is like a contract around it in the gut. It just like it just goes like this. Sometimes the whole pelvis will lock and in the back too. It's just like it's almost like the energy rises and the back goes like that. I just saw it. It was like no question. And I realized that probably it's because I've just been um, these fears have been around a very long time and they've been held in in that way and so I guess what the practice is doing is opening up the fears and putting some a, a choice into the resistance you know I have a choice there to either resist it or not at times if the mindfulness is good and so um, but it's very very difficult and I feel like what's happening now that's really difficult is that after this experience I had three weeks of virtually no pain mm. and it was, I was so happy, I thought I would never feel that way again in my life, you know, and it was wonderful and of course I also then began to think it's going to be different now, you know, and then when, it, when things started closing down again it was heartbreaking, mm. you know, and so now, now I feel I'm finding you know, I'm going in and out of it, you know. It's really hard because my mind likes there not to be pain, you know. But now, um, like today, it's just there's a feeling of like this and um, I try to just forget about all of that, you know. It's like it's gone, you know, this is it. And I feel like that's how the question of faith is alive for me all the time. That's when you said, when you said, um, is what is ha- can I trust into what is happening, that this is just exactly the thing that is supposed to be happening now? When I am able to touch in with that, it just all falls apart and it's all okay. But it's, it's often really hard to remember that. bargaining also, you know. I sometimes think, you know, well, if I can just allow the fear to be, then there's still another part to that that deal that doesn't even have to have words, you know, but it's just so much wants it just to go away, you know. And I'm seeing that also a lot. Doubt of, they must 
you know, there must be something wrong with me that I'm not getting it. There must yeah. be something wrong that that final realization didn't hold. And um, it's been very actually a very softening and humbling experience to let go of those deep agendas that I found I had of what constitutes health and what constitutes sanity and normal development and everything else. Mm -hmm. And to really open up to, wow, this is what my life has been. And my life has been a lot dealing with fear. And I mean, I say it a lot to people here in interviews and in more personal check-ins. I really dealt with fear. I mean, I'm, I deal with my terror and I deal with my fear a tremendous amount all the time. And it's taken such a deep letting go to accept that almost daily I work around these levels of terror and fear. Hmm. So I really, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Do you, um, how do you work with resistance? Really, uh, really, um, what really a lot what you're saying is that I feel like I don't have a lot of control around it, that when mindfulness is strong, sometimes it, it comes and it goes and it doesn't really impact me a lot, and that when mindfulness isn't, I don't have control over the contraction around it, and I go into this, I feel like I'm in this twisted, contorted position inside of mm -hmm. myself and my contraction, and that's when I do more of the activities, the backing off activities that you talk about, like that's when I swim and I sauna that's, or have a hot bath here or light my altar candles or I mean sometimes I'll even watch a movie or something that's like really backing off mm. and often that softens the contraction of the mm -hmm. mm. And then, you know, Enough to, to be able to function. That's really yeah. yeah. what, I've, what I've been working with when I lately, when I go into a negative, fearful mind space, is start doing meta, doing meta um, for myself. That's as far as I can go. Um, and I have my own little formula in that. Uh, so my own little sayings you know, that I put together. And that gets me out of that that fear space, out of that negative space that I find myself in, and that helps me. One of the things that um, has been wonderful is coming here every four weeks, you know, and sitting for a, for a week has meant that you know I feel like I don't have a choice. That my life is like it feels like it's on the front burner, you know. There's no choice about that. Everything feels really intense, you know. If I'm sitting and just grounding in that way feels like I'm seeing more, you know. And it's, I mean, it's the greatest gift, you know. Because not being able to understand it to some degree, um, then I'm right into feeling a victim, you know. So just coming and sitting every so often for, it's a one, it's, in some ways I think maybe for me it's better than like a three-month course, just every so often coming and seeing what's happened, you know, feels like um, it's just making it workable and I don't know how other people, you know, I go to a support group meeting in Brattleboro where there are anything from five to twelve other people who are living with the virus. And you know, these people are all drinking, smoking, you know, um, uh, doing very self-destructive things, you know. And um, I feel like one of the unquestionable blessings, you know, is that the Dharma has given me a choice about that, you know. I feel like 
to the extent that I have a choice, I'm not adding to what's going on, you know. And one of the things that's really painful in this group, and when I was in Hawaii, I went to an HIV support group also, and just felt how these people are destroying themselves, you know. Like, it's almost like killing themselves with the diagnosis, you know. And for a lot of my friends, you know, <clears throat> you know, some of them died, you know, they went from being pretty much okay and they died, you know, in like seven, eight months, you know. I feel it's just like the weight of the burden of living with this virus is so enormous, both one's own terrors plus the weight of, of what comes at you that I feel like, you know, the Dharma really gave me another way, you know, just, you know, to a great degree, you know, and that certainly is one of the reasons why I feel such deep refuge in this, you know, I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to live, you know, but um, I do know that in the last months I've known times of being unquestionably happier and more fulfilled than I've ever been in my life. And so in some ways I feel like I can die now, you know. You know, it would have been awful to have just got the diagnosis and just, you know, died. Listening, you talked about how um, hear, hearing the diagnosis has been really part of your opening. You know, um, it's some of the ways we talk about what the Dharma is, and I think it's sometimes the the difference between the Mahayana and the Theravada traditions. You know, that uh, for me, so much of how I see the Dharma is that process of uh, all of us opening up to um, the experiences of life and being in the body, you know, and the imperfection of it, how it's expressing itself in, you know, HIV or disability or just the struggles in our love affairs or so on and so forth. And, um, and um, one of the reasons I love being this on this side of Yogi Land, which is in Star Flight Yogi Land, and, and being here together, is how much I feel like that part is stressed here. You know, that the Dharma for us is very much each of us in our own ways in this context, taking up the challenges and, and using that, using the experiences we have in here as the opening. And that's what I hear really, I mean, I really love hearing you talk because it's um, not, it's just a, a, a different perspective on, for example, some of the ways the Dharma is communicated, you know, mm. which is in some more traditional, it's sometimes communicated more traditionally. And um, it feels very, it feels really, uh, it feels very inspiring and very supportive to me, you know, to, to hear how the openings happen for you and how that is the Dharma for you, that process of opening and how it's brought you to that sense of the possibility of freedom. And 
One of the things that is also true is that I don't want to, you know, to give the impression that, um, that it was like, you know, along came the virus and, you know, it was just like I knew where I wanted to go. It's like I feel like I have been kicking and screaming, you know, my way through these last two years on inner levels, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's just, for me, the experience of this virus has been so, um, I don't want to use too strong a word, the word that I was going to use was brutal, but, but it was like, it is just, it hits at so many levels, it hits, you know, you know, on the level of, you know, like one of the things that I'm dealing with now is, um, you know, I, I broke up with my lover and I met Bill before I was diagnosed and I left him in December and so now I'm thinking of myself again in terms of being a sexually active person, you know, so I'm looking at my sexuality and I find that one of the ways that this virus is alive in me is with a real sense of shame, you know, I'm feeling like I'm sort of um, like damaged or soiled, you know, like shame, you know, and, uh, and that's really painful because, mm-hmm. you know, I've gone through all the years of coming out as a gay man, of, you know, of living that with dignity and pride and overtly and, you know, no secrets anymore, you know, and that was a long way. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I'm back there, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, so it's like dealing with all these other things and also now dealing with if I am going to live without limitation and fullness, that includes it feels true for me to be sexually alive. And what I find there, it's like it's been at work there too in that way, you know. And it's just it's just amazing. You know, the other thing is that people bring so much stuff to the virus, you know. Sometimes when people look at me, I don't think that they see me, you know. I think that they see HIV, cancer, this, that, you know, all the pictures. They don't even see me, that I'm flesh, blood, care, you know. And it's just, it's such a powerful teacher, you know. Like this one guy at the co-op in Brattleboro, whenever I go to the co-op to do my grocery shopping, it's really sweet, but he looks at me and it's like, you can see every time he sees me, the first thing is, he's alive. You know, and, you know, and then he comes up to me with these eyes like this and he's looking for the place where I'm going to fall apart, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like um, being able to say, hmm, your stuff, you know, you know, and trying to, and, and that affects me. I mean, I'm not impervious to either his energy or, or to the situation. And it's just like, you know, on so many levels it's finding strength and doing the dance, you know. It's the same with handicapped people who all we see is the handicap. Yeah. I have this this um, dream that I'm gonna like do all the work that I have to do, and then they're gonna find a cure. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the tablet or get the injection. And then I can like settle back and like all my friends will still be struggling and doing all the all their work and I can just kind of sit back, you know. Mm-hmm. And for the next forty years just sort of take a <laughs> 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 
I never realized before, you know, when I sat part of the Upandita course, the first one that was here, he had us for a couple of days just sitting in the hall, I don't know if they still do it, but just chanting, uh, death is certain, when is uncertain, death is certain, when is uncertain, and we just would do this like, you know, for sitting after sitting after sitting, and, you know, I feel like I never really understood it, you know, until this experience and you know quite recently how absolutely fundamental that is in terms of of being happy you know you know I mean it seems so odd but it's like there's something about the degree of resolution with mortality being the degree to which the happiness is really real you know and that's, I'm sure that it's, it, I mean, it's just more and more and more, which I don't know about, you know. But um, th- th- there's something about just letting go of the, the gridlock around mortal- immortality, you know, just holding on to the future and stuff, that actually is really joyful, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a funny equation, you know.
I really thought I was dead in that when we, I was, it, it was my greatest fear to be in the basement of that building in an earthquake, and that's right where I was wow. when the earthquake hit. And for days afterwards, well, it, it affected everybody so deeply. Um, but what it did for me, the, the strongest thing it did for me was give me resolution about what I was doing with my life. That I, I knew I was going to stay in California, continue on the program, and just had, I just had a lot of resolution about what I was doing. But the fear was, I never experienced fear like that. Hmm. What, what came to me real strong from these times of thinking of being close to death is what you're talking about, joy. You know, joy just being here um, in the moment. Just joy with whatever is happening in this moment. Um, well, practically, uh, I see a number of different body workers, mm -hmm. you know, uh, chiropractor, uh, neuromuscular therapist, because I think it's, you know, I'm not sure, it's so little is known about this virus that, you know, unless it's absolutely one of the specific manifestations of it, they don't know a lot. And I have some sort of muscular neurological thing that goes on that could be the virus, but it might not be, and they don't know. And so, you know, all these people do is try and open up the muscles and stretch them, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's good, you know, sometimes it lasts a long time, and sometimes, like I saw him yesterday, but today it's really sore again, you know. So I do that, I, I get acupuncture, and, um, I play this edge where I don't want to like put myself in cotton wool and you know protect myself all the time but on the other hand like somebody said to me the other day well you know that the chairman of American Express got Epstein-Barr virus and every every sort of virus he was really sick and what he did was he decided he always wanted to climb a mountain and so he went and climbed Mount Everest even though he was really sick and he said I think that that's what you should do that you should like ignore your pain and just like set forth, you know, and it was a real challenge for me and I feel like, like, I'm not going to climb Mount Everest and I feel like I will always question any limitation but I don't feel like I have to hurt myself in order to be free from suffering, you know. And I won't do that. But, you know, I mean, the fear is there, you know, and sometimes the fear has to be engaged. And so it's, it's constantly not overprotecting myself, but not doing violence to myself. And I feel I'm at that edge all the time. All the time. Not only what I'm doing physically, but in what I'm eating too. Because sometimes, like, I've reached the stage now where I can't stand the sight of tofu or tempeh. It's like, I just can't stand it, you know, and so, you know, I don't eat it, you know, I'm, I'm eating chicken now, and fish, and eggs, you know, and sometimes I just have to have something, you know, I can't stand brown, brown rice, you know, and yet my diet is still very, very, yeah, Theravadan, you know, it's like there's nothing elaborate, I don't eat a lot of things, but, you know, like playing with fear on every level, physically as well as, you know, emotionally. And I sit a lot, you know. I, I try and sit three times a day, you know, just so that I can be as present as possible because it's so clear to me because, because of the neurological stuff, which is like the sort of... Um, 
like a fire that goes on in your music, you know? And um, sometimes it's not bad, you know? And it's also like when it started a year and a half ago, I freaked out, you know? I mean, it was horrible. It was like, it was like somebody else's body. I've been putting somebody else's body, you know? It wasn't my own body. Well, now, now it's like I realize that days go by of it just being okay, you know? Like I don't freak out about it so much anymore. But sometimes when it's really intense, what I do is I go and I stand in front of the mirror and I look at myself and I realize that the energetic experience of my body becomes so distorted that I think I'm going to look like the elephant man, you know, in the mirror. I can't believe that it's me, you know, in, in the mirror. So it's it's different, you know, but sitting helps a lot, you know, I feel like the, the, as far as I understand it, the energy is pretty open in the body, but they're just places where it's absolutely gridlocked, and sitting just moves it more, and so often um, when I sit, um, although I get very sensitive, and that's why the quiet is really and I don't sit a lot, but just being protected, it's like the resistances just sort of fall away. That's how Joseph described it. He said, you don't have to do intensive practice. He said, your life is intensive practice. He said, come to IMS and just use the, the protection here. And then your energy just lets go and what needs to happen happens. And that's kind of how it is, you know which makes it great to be on retreat sometimes, but taking that into the world is really hard. You know? Sometimes if somebody comes up to me and the energy is sort of frantic, you know? It's like I, you know, it's just wild. It's like, I just feel like my whole body goes chaotic, you know? And that's really one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to be able to come here, because it truly is the best medicine, far more important than anything that I'm taking, is being able to come here and sit and just see more clearly what's going on and understand it to whatever degree is possible and sort of go out there. Because I sometimes say, should I go to a monastery? You know, I've been a monk before and it's, it's a pull, but I, I don't believe that that's really what I, I need to do. I feel like there's a fullness of living that I am going to have before I die, whenever that is. And that fullness is out there, you know? And, um, and so I'm doing whatever I can to know that. And so coming here, sitting, is what means most to me. And that's why I'm so excited about this book, is that, you know, I mean, personally, it, it really is neither here nor there that they're going to do this book, but I feel that if we give the title of the book a very provocative title, if anybody comes up with one, let me or wisdom know, so that people who are HIV positive or dealing with life-threatening illness can know that there is the Dharma there, you know? Um, I feel like it's given me choices that, that I feel so privileged, you know? so privileged and so if if what this book can do is reach people that are dealing with with these really unworkable situations of life-threatening illness and this AIDS virus is really um, hard you know and without this or well, uh, you know a real spiritual foundation I don't know how people do it you know so uh, when I was, when I gave the talk at CIMC, I've given two talks here, I gave one, and I, I spoke about the diagnosis, <coughs> and the tape of that talk was circulated around the AIDS community in Boston, and then when I went again, when I was staying here in April, 1st of May, I went and did another one, and there were a lot of people there, there were about 120 people, 
And there were lots of PWAs there. Mm. There were a lot of people with the virus. What's PWA? A person with AIDS. Oh. And um, I met about four other guys who, um, to some degree, were, were using the Dharma, working with it. And it was really, mm. you know, it was really wonderful. But um, I think, of course, it makes a difference if you knew the Dharma before the diagnosis. You know. So um, I, I worked with one man who found the Dharma after the diagnosis, and it was too much. He, you know, he couldn't contain it. You know, and he died um, very excited, but um, it was just too overwhelming. I want you to know that I could stay here all afternoon and evening, <laughs> and I do know that uh, you know whenever it's time we should close, and I'm happy to stay on. Do one more closure for a minute, and then that we'd like to stay in, and you can stay and have it more informal until then. This is the second moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.